as I was in the parsonage uh, preparing for the storm, having prepared, I should say, as best that I could. I was in the parsonage, and I still had electricity, and so I decided I'd like to do a little quick investigation into some of the storms recorded in the Bible. And I was looking in particular for any hint as to God's purpose in the various storms we read of in the Scripture. I was doing this for one reason, not this only reason, but one of the reasons I want to see some storms of the Bible and what God's purposes were in those storms was I was finding it inaccurate and troubling to hear some people say they knew exactly what God's purpose was for Irma, and they had narrowed God's purpose for Irma to a certain thing. And it didn't sit right with me, and it caused me, propelled me to do a little Bible study in the parsonage awaiting for Irma. And what I want to share with you this morning in a very quick fashion because of time's constraints, 11 storms in Scripture and the things that God does through storms. 11 storms, the things that God does through storms. The first fact that has to be stated, we dare not miss the following fact, is that God can control and use storms. God can control and use storms. And the second fact is we can't. I heard some nonsense people saying that they did this or that, and that's what averted Irma. That's crazy. It is only God who controls storms, God who uses storms. We can do neither of those things. And so in Psalm 104, verse 3, it's one of many verses in the book of Psalms that I think states this fact. Psalm 104 and verse 3, he, God, lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the winds. God can and does control storms, and God can and does control storms for his own sovereign, flawless, all-wise purposes. The first storm I want to share with you is creation's storm. You do realize that before Irma ever appeared on the scene, that creation has been battling a general storm since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden fell into sin. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, this is made very clear. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You do realize that all of creation is in pain because of sin. 
our sin. And the pain that creation feels is akin to the pain of a woman in labor soon to deliver a baby. And so what you could say over all the other storms that I will point to in this message is the overarching storm is sin's impact on creation. And so the point I take from the creation storm is the fall into sin. The second storm I want to consider with you, I'm calling the Egyptian plague storm. Go with me to Exodus 9. As you know, God delivered his people Israel out of Egyptian slavery using plagues. And the plague that we're going to look at in Exodus 9 is the seventh plague. And the point of this seventh plague in Egypt, the storm of the seventh plague in Egypt, was God getting a person's attention. And the person that God was getting the attention of was Pharaoh. Sometimes God's purpose in a storm is to get a person's attention. And in Exodus 9 and verse 13 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that they may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, would you then have been cut off from the earth? But indeed, for this cause, I have allowed you to remain, here it is, in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. God sent the storm that he sent of hail to Egypt. By the way, you do realize that Egypt is a hot temperature country. They don't usually get frozen rain. But God sent them frozen rain. A hailstorm. Because God, in that storm, wanted to get one person's attention. A person who put himself above the true God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh. The third storm I want to point us to is the storm that I am calling the two houses storm. It's the storm in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus paints the picture of, the wise man and the foolish man. The two houses storm. This storm was a test of life's foundation. Who or what is your foundation of life? Jesus taught about this storm that two houses underwent in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Jesus' words, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. 
And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. In this storm that I'm calling the two houses storm, the test of life foundation, it's at the end of Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And the point of this illustration is that it is obedience to God's word that gives you the proper foundation for your life that will help your life to stand up to the hurricanes of circumstance, the family problems, the money problems, the health problems. And so the storm that I am calling the storm of the two houses was a test of life's foundation. Who or what is your foundation? The fifth storm is a storm that I'm calling the Red Sea Storm. You remember it in Exodus chapter 14, the Red Sea Storm. It was a miracle of deliverance. And in Exodus 14, Pharaoh has capitulated to let the, the Jews go as slaves in Egypt. They're working their way away from Egypt, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. He can't find a labor force nearly as cheap as they were, and he changes his mind. And he starts chasing that nation of over perhaps three million Jews who are fleeing from Egypt through the desert. And God gave the Red Sea storm so that God's deliverance miracle would happen. Exodus 14. 21 to 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by the strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians and over their chariots and over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone down into the sea after them, and not even one of them remained. That was the Red Sea storm that God brought to bring deliverance and miracle to his chosen people. Deliverance from God's enemies, deliverance of God's people, a demonstration of God's omnipotence, his utter, complete possession of all the power there is, a display of God's mercy, because they had been doubting, you know. Before the deliverance miracle, they had been doubting big time. Verses 10 to 12, when they heard the Egyptians, as it were, hot in pursuit of them, they started doubting. 
verses uh, 10 to 12. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? That's positive. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Here they had been doubting. And God in his mercy and grace delivered them with a deliverance miracle by parting the seas of the Red Sea. That's the kind of God we serve. They had been doubting, but Moses was a good leader, a man of faith, verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. That's a good leader. I want to show a less than one minute YouTube video clip. Do we have that available? This happened December 1st, 2016. The Golan Heights are the highest point in northern Israel, borders onto Syria. ISIS was coming down to invade Israel on December 1st, 2016, less than a year ago, and God did a deliverance miracle like the Red Sea. Could we see it? Thank you so much. The Red Sea storm is a storm, was a storm of God's deliverance miracle. We're seeing that God has different purposes in storms, right? To see the fall into sin, to get a person's attention, to test the foundation of a person's life. What about the disciples' storm? What about the disciples' storm in Matthew chapter 8? These were seasoned fishermen, perhaps as many as half of them were seasoned fishermen. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands. They made a living on the Sea of Galilee. They knew right well that it was a very shallow, rocky lake and that the winds would come off the hillside and sweep up the uh, Sea of Galilee into like uh, a tempest in a teapot, just like that. The squalls and the winds could capsize a fishing boat and make it impossible to swim to shore. They knew all that. And so this one day, they're on have occasion to be in their fishing boat with Jesus. And a storm came. Matthew 8, 23. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. By the way, that's what disciples do. They follow Jesus. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, 
Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The disciple storm, the purpose of the disciple storm was so that they would see more of Jesus. That they would see more of Jesus. That they would see his complete control over creation, complete control over the storm, could see afresh, maybe more deeply, his divinity, that he was, in fact, God, and that he is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, not at that point. He is Lord. Could it be that this storm or other storms God has let you experience so that you would see more of Jesus? The sixth storm I see in Scripture is, I'm calling it the war storm. The point of the war storm was military victory. God gave the storm I'm going to read to you about to give his people victory in battle over the Philistines. A military victory. We see that in 1 Samuel 7, verses 10 to 11. Let me set this up for you. After a time of Israeli national repentance and revival, after Samuel, the high priest of Israel, had sacrificed for Israel sin and had interceded for Israel in prayer, the Philistines showed up to seek to kill the Israelites. And God sent a storm. And it brought about military victory in that setting. 1 Samuel 7, 10 to 11. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on the day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as beth the war storm here in 1 Samuel was one of military victory. God, the purpose of that storm was to give Israel military victory over the Philistines. What about Noah's storm? In some ways, the storm of all storms. What about Noah's storm? We know from reading Genesis chapters 6 through 9, that the world's population had become exceedingly wicked in the sight of God. And God was even sorry, it says in the text, that he made human beings. And in Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7, is sort of the condensed encapitalization of what was going on with the global flood. Genesis 6 Five to seven. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of, of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. The point of Noah's storm was the holiness of God. If God were not holy, there would not have been a global flood. But God is holy, and he can't tolerate sin. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't say, well, we're not as bad as those guys. Sin is sin to God. It's reprehensible to God. And God's holiness really only finds its meaning when God has wrath against sin. You don't have wrath against sin, then you can question, is God truly holy? Noah's storm was all about the holiness of God. And really, the global flood was to be inevitable because mankind was constantly, deeply sinful. What about Jonah's storm? What about Jonah's storm? You know the story? Jonah, prophet of Israel, Jonah 1, 1 to 4. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah rose and fled to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, or so he thought. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down to go into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So God identifies the prophet Jonah, and he says to them, him, you go, to, you go 500 miles northeast from where you are. And Jonah says, no, God, I hate the Ninevites, and I'm not going to take that assignment. And he tries to go 2,000 miles northwest. God says, you go to Nineveh, Jonah says, I don't want to. I'm not going to go 500 miles northeast. I'm going to go 2,000 miles northwest. It's a little bit of Jonah in all of us, if we're honest. And so the storm came, 112. After the storm came, the sailors cast lots trying to figure out what happened. And the lot fell on Jonah, and they basically said, What gives? And Jonah says in verse 12, And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that it's on my account that this great storm has come. So you know what they did reluctantly. They valued his life more than he valued his own life. They threw him overboard, and God appointed a fish, a great fish, to swallow him. And he was in the belly of the fish for three days. Chapter 2 is his desperate prayer from the belly of the fish. Sometimes we only get praying when we get desperate. And in 2.10, God gave the fish indigestion and no Pepto-Bismol. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God's appointment of the fish was so precise with GPS coordinates that when he was going 2,000 miles northeast from Nineveh, it was 500 miles to the northwest, God takes the fish to the beach of Nineveh and pukes him on the beach. Pardon my language. The purpose of this storm was the redirection of human will 
Some storms come because God purposes to redirect our wills. Three, one to three. He's been vomited on the beach. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, so that orders have not changed, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days walk. You'd like to hear the story ends that once he was in the fish, got out of the fish, got a second commissioning, he went there cheerfully, served the Lord, praised the Lord the rest of his life, and he lived happily ever after. You know the rest of the story. He still was bigoted. He still was fearful. He got angry over God's compassion and mercy toward the Ninevites. They were like ISIS, the ISIS of Jonah's day. He hated them. But the storm, the point I want to teach you is that the storm that Jonah experienced was a redirection of his will. Does your will need to be redirected? Jonah's storm, said another way, was to bring about personal repentance. Do you need personal repentance on anything? The last three storms I have for you are all to do with Elijah. And the first of the three, number nine storm, if you're taking notes, is Elijah's ministry storm. We see this in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 24. This is when Elijah, in God's strength, dukes it out with the priests of Baal, the idol Baal. And he says in 20 to 24, this is what it says, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel, a showdown of prophets. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Does that question need to be asked of any of us this morning? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? You may be here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior. You've rejected him. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Or maybe you know him as Savior and you're not walking into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're you're flirting with the world. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? It goes on. He said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up, place it on the wood, put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on some wood, and I will put not put fire on under it. Then you call on the name of your God, little g, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered and said, that's a good idea. So he sets up a test for who actually is God, the idol Baal or the Lord God of the Israelites? Who is God? You may remember what happened in verses 37 to 39, it's a slam dunk victory for the true and living God. Elijah prays after the prophets of Baal could not call fire down from Baal. They cut themselves, they lanced themselves, they wailed, but nothing happened. And then Elijah turns to the true and living God in verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, why? That this people may know that thou art, O Lord God, that thou hast turned 
their heart back again. And then fire, the fire of the Lord fell, there's the storm, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. This was after it was drenched with water. Do you remember that? And the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so Elijah's ministry storm I've just read to you was about the uniqueness of God. That the true and living God is not like other gods' idols, and the idols are not like the true and living God. The true God is utterly, beautifully unique. Sometimes God sends storms so that his people and those who are not his people would see the uniqueness of the true God. Okay, so that's great. Praise the Lord for that miracle. You think everything's going to smooth sailing for us, smoothly rather for Elijah, but you know what happened. In chapter 19, we go from Elijah's ministry storm to Elijah's after ministry storm. And if the first storm was about the uniqueness of God, this after ministry storm was a recall to God's purposes. I've needed a recall to God's purposes more than once. Have you? Listen to the storm that happened after that miracle with the prophets of Baal. That's chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so many gods do to me, and even more if I do not make, make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she uttered a death threat against Elijah, number th- verse three. And he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. That's not good. He uh, feared for his life, and he tried to run away. Verses 4 through 9. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. He was suicidal. And he said, It's enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. I love that, the tenderness of the care of God when we're clinically depressed. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stoves and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. I like that, too, that God let him sleep, let him physically and mentally recover some. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. And so he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of, the food, of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is what's going on. God was tender and patient with his fearful and depressed prophet, ministered to his physical needs tenderly. But then the time came that God said, just prior to a storm, Elijah would see, why are you here? Ever ask yourself that question? Why am I here? What is my purpose? 
God asked Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of the hosts. And the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He's got a little pity party. I'm the only one left, God, and they're after me. Verse 13. Here's the storm. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God asked him twice, what are you doing here? Could God be asking you this morning, what are you doing here in Nassau in 2017 after Irma passed us by? What are you doing here? Do you know your purpose? Are you about God's purpose or just your own purpose? Now, let me show you the storm that Elijah actually said. God uh, saw, God said to him in verse 11, so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great strong wind, there's a storm, was rending the mountains. It was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks. Breaking in pieces the rocks, that was some wind. That was a category six. Rending the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. The Lord wasn't in the catastrophic things because he would have focused only on the catastrophic things. But he, God sent the catastrophic storm elements so that he would get his attention. And then after they passed by, there was a gentle breeze, like we're enjoying now, gentle breeze. And God was in the gentle breeze. He wanted to speak truth to his prophet in the gentle breeze after the storm. He wanted to ask the prophet, now do you know why you're here? Now do you know my purpose for you? Be about it. Be about my purpose for you. The last storm at least in the ones I've studied for this occasion, is Elijah's rainstorm storm in James chapter 5. You may remember this storm. In James chapter 5, we get a, a tremendous summa sum summation in James chapter 5, 16b through the end of 18. 16b, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Do you believe that? This is the morning to believe that. The effective prayer of a righteous man or woman can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain for, on the earth for three years and six months. Imagine. The prophet prays for no rain on the globe, and no rain comes to the globe for 3.5 years. Prayer is effective. But then it's 18, and then he, Elijah, prayed again, and the sky poured rain, <laughs> and the earth produced its fruit. Church family, 
Elijah's rainstorm has the purpose of God, the power of prayer. Do you believe in the power of prayer? There's a real easy test as to whether you do or you don't. If you believe in the power of prayer, you pray. If you don't believe in the power of prayer, you don't bother to pray. And so this storm of withheld rain for three and a half years and then pouring rain after that when he prayed is a call to you to pray. We're having special prayer times at the prayer altar for marriages and families. They'll resume this week. Come in during the any church office hour and take some time in the choir room with a list of the church directory of persons and families. And you just pray for marriages and for families for as long as you can stay, five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you can pray. And then just mark the list where you've quit. I quit with the Smiths. The next person who comes prays for the next person after the Smiths. Elijah's rainstorm prayer was, the point of it was the power of prayer, and the application of it was, come and pray. Come and pray. So when it comes to storms, I hope that you see what I see, that one size does not fit all storms with respect to God's purposes. So be careful when you pronounce God's purpose on Irma. Be careful. Because one size does not fit all when it comes to God's purposes in giving storms. But let me just, before I pray, the purposes of these 11 storms to show that creation has fallen into sin, to get a person's attention, to live, to get your life's foundation tested, to see more of Jesus, to see God's deliverance miracle, to have military victory, to have the holiness of God showcased, to redirect human wills, to see the uniqueness of God, to recall God's people to God's purpose and to call us to pray more. This little study really encouraged me. I hope it encouraged you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the all-wise God who never wastes a paint brushstroke on the canvases of our lives. Lord, we pray that individually we would learn the lessons you want us to learn from Irma We pray that we as a body, the incredible body of Christ, would learn the lessons that you want us to learn from Irma. And we pray for the Commonwealth of the Bahamas, that we would learn the lessons you want us to learn from Irma. We pray the same thing for all other countries and persons affected by this storm. We pray these things asking for your mercy for those still going through the storm. In Jesus' name, amen.